Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another edition of Focus on Metal. So this week we uh, go back to our Kerrang! project as we do the 11th installment of this puppy. I'd almost like to say this is our 11th and final part of the Kerrang! project, but in fact there's so much audio from this uh, this guest this week that we'll actually have to have a part 11.5 hopefully next week for you. And then uh, Richie has just told me that he has uh, been in touch with another sound slash Kerrang writer. So we might just call that an appendix to all of this. So anyways, this week, like I said, we are back on the Kerrang boat and we are talking with Dave Reynolds. And I will say that a big, huge thanks to Dave because he's been very, very instrumental in helping uh, Richie reach out to a lot of people and a really good guy to get to know early in the project. Very helpful. And we uh, we actually owe him a lot for making this thing what it is. And definitely, this is a guy that really does know his hard rock and heavy metal. The guy has been involved with almost all of the major UK and European rock magazines. Metal Forces, he was with them. Kerrang! Metal Hammer. He was also uh, with Classic Rock. So he has been uh, around quite a few different magazines. And if that wasn't enough, he is now involved with Rock Candy. So Dave has been doing it out there since around the 70s. And as I said, extremely knowledgeable guy, lots of history, lots of connections. And it's interesting, you go back and you read some of the other interviews with Dave that are around the net. And you find that uh, the experiences that Dave has had out there with a lot of the same guests that we had on the show so far, uh, they pretty match up. A lot of people that he thinks are really great guys that uh, it matches up with the uh, the time and energy those guests gave to us being on the show, and then other people that he's been not so hot on. It's it's kind of been measured the same way. So uh, it's kind of interesting to you know see that his experience with uh, with different people in the industry pretty much mirrors what we have been experiencing here on Focus on Metal. So uh, Dave's got so much good stuff to talk about this week that we don't want to shortchange any of the folks that listen to us on various internet radio stations, uh, especially those that uh, give us only the hour time slot. So we don't really want to cut this thing off and have you miss a, a good chunk of what Dave's talking about. Cause he's got a lot of great stuff to talk about. So we're going to try, like I said, divide this sucker up into two episodes, probably a little bit of chat with Richie and myself on the next one. And this one is pretty much just all Richie and Dave talking about Dave's experience with, with Metal Hammer, with Kerrang, with, you know, the bands that were out there. You got to have the obligatory Aussie stories in there as well. So with that, why don't we get into Richie's talk with Dave Reynolds? Hello. Is that Dave? Yeah. Hi, Richie. Yeah. Hi, Dave. How are you? Nice to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, so where in the UK are you? Um, in Nottingham. Okay. All right. Is that where you've always been? Um, no, I used to live down in London, obviously, because it was nearer to where all the action was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Been here since about well, 20 years now. Okay. Prefer it up there, do you? 
Um, oh, it's just where I just ended up, Trillian, and never left. Okay, okay. Yeah, you were never tempted to move abroad like me. Um, yeah, there was a moment in maybe the early 90s where there was an opportunity to perhaps move to Sacramento, but um, I resisted it because it just didn't make sense at the time, and I'm glad it didn't. Okay, okay. So you, you've obviously uh, you've listened to some of the episodes I've already done on this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. they've been. They, that's why I was interested in doing this. Yeah, they've been a lot of fun. I, I'm curious. Um, I don't think anybody's ever done something like this before. Not as far as I'm aware. No, this is the first time it's sort of really been um, sort of in, in sort of investigated. Really, there was a book that a guy called Neil Daniels did, um, where he interviewed various people from music publications, not just Kerrang, and that ran to two volumes. And that was pretty interesting to read. Yeah, um, I can't remember what the title of the, the books were, but they're worth tracking down if you can find them. I think I had the first one, um, but it wasn't just limited to Kerrang. I think he, he interviewed a lot of journalists about how they got into it and you know what tips yeah. they had kind of thing. It wasn't really on Kerrang itself, though. No, it's all pens blazing, that's what it was called. Yeah, I think there's two volumes on it. I think I had one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. That's, that's where yeah. some of the names for this came from, actually. Because I, I couldn't remember. I don't have all the old magazines. Yeah. So, Dave, what journalistic background did you have before you joined Kerrang? Um, interestingly enough, not many people probably know this, but I actually worked for, well, I did some work for Kerrang um, long before I actually started working for them as a full-time freelancer um, because I was um, involved in sort of like fanzine writing um, back in about 1981, 82. And it just so happened that this coincided with a German band called Bullet uh, appearing on the scene um, who had an album out. Um, I can't remember the title of it now, but it will come back to me at some point. But they were keen on getting into the UK market. And because I've met the guitarist at um, a Forces radio show where he was doing an interview, um, that... Um, I thought, well, I, I kind of feel like champion this band because they were really good. They were like a kind of cross between, I guess, ACDC and the Scorpions. Um, so I did a, there, there was that um, feature in Kerrang! at the time called Armed and Ready, which sort of championed new and upcoming bands, whether they got a record deal or not. And I sort of contacted, I think it might have been Dante Benuto at the time, as to whether or not he'd be interested in me writing a little piece on Bullet, um, which I did, and it got printed. And that was probably around um, sometime in 1982, which was issue 28, I think. Um and I then subsequently did got um, him interested in a full-page feature on the band, which ran about 10 years later. So I interviewed the band, and and, um, and that got published as well. And they did something else in Armed and Ready. And then because of it, it was a weird kind of situation. I think it was because I was fairly... Um, naive or young or, or not assertive enough back then or didn't have the confidence in my ability um, I didn't really pursue it in terms of seeing if I could get any more work with him because it, from from me my perspective it seems to be a bit of a closed club at that time a little bit of a clique which it really wasn't but to me at the time it was so I was kind of a little bit intimidated I guess yeah. from pursuing that further so I went the route of of helping co-found Metal Forces magazine, and that went on to the point where um, 
I then got involved in the the the, um, the introduction of Metal Hammer into the UK because my good friend Dave Ling um, was involved in that, and he um, persuaded the editor at the time, Harry Doherty, to to bring me aboard, and that happened um, full time in about late 1987, um, and <laughs> that's a bit of a, a crazy period because I left my job, um, a steady. Um, day job in an office, um, good pay for this wild experience that uh, it could have gone either way and it sort of went a bit pear-shaped to begin with because within two weeks of me starting as a reviews editor at Metal Hammer in uh, in um, London, um, for some reason there seemed to be a big shake-up that was uh, decided upon by the publishers in Germany because everything at that time for Metal Hammer was controlled by the Germans. Because they owned it, they just wanted a piece of the UK market, and it all because there was such a controlling influence from Germany, it really caused the, the, the UK magazine to be a bit of a shambles. Um, but nonetheless, they decided to install a new management team or a new editorial team, which meant that they kind of recruited the likes of Dante Benuto and Malcolm Day, Mark Potterford, and, and Co. from Kerrang, who at, at that time they'd just gone weekly. And so they came over to Metal Hammer, and I was out the door, basically. Okay. Um, I suppose it didn't help that I'd actually kind of sort of seen this coming, because as soon as this happened, I thought, I'm not going to really be wanted in this publication. So I sort of made um, contact with Jeff Barton, because he was losing a lot of key staff at that time. They were all coming over to Metal Hammer, because they'd all fallen out with what was going on at Kerrang at the time. So I had a, meet, a meeting with Jeff. He said, well, yeah, if they let you go, you can come on board with Kerrang. And so I was fired by fax and then joined Kerrang the next day. And I was with them for 10 years. <laughs> you were fired by fax? Wow. Yeah, it was, embar- it was embarrassing. I guess because... And I, I'm not. I was bitter about this for quite a while, but I can see really over the length of time, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've done, uh, sort of like, I've, um, you know, I've, I've gotten um, a better relationship with those guys since, you know, like Malcolm. I've always, I've known Malcolm for years, but and Dante, I guess, but I'm not better than no ill. Um, but it was just really weird because I was, I'm pretty sure, looking back at it, that they'd gone over to Germany. Um, to meet with the publishers to, and then what the plan was going to be. I guess they kind of expected me to be out the door by the time they got back into London. That didn't happen. So it was all a bit, looking back now, it was all a bit awkward to be in an office with Dante and Co, having probably expected me to have been fired, um, but I was still there. And so then this fact turned up from Germany, from the publishers, basically terminating my employment with them. Yeah. Now, when Dante and the guys were in the office with you, were you the only guy yeah. still there from the old regime, or was there other people as well? No, Dave, Dave Ling. There were a couple of other people who were, were still there. But I think what compounded it more was that they found out that I'd been to visit Jeff in Kerrang. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that didn't help. That didn't help my cause, and I can kind of see why that. <laughs> what happened happened. So, but I don't bear that many of it. It was quite an amusing story looking back on it now. But yeah. that, 
probably fully expected to leave the out be gone. Um, unfortunately, the secretary at the time also got fired by a fax and the same fax because she had, she had made the huge error of being so frustrated at fielding phone calls from people asking to speak to Kerrang writers, whether they were actually transferred over to Metal Hammer or not, that she answered the phone and said, hello, Kerrang, and it was a German publisher. <laughs> so she got fired for that reason, and uh, but she went on to bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. So, like that whole period, I, I spoke to Dante about it, and within a couple of weeks, they were gone as well out of there. So it obviously everything wasn't kosher anyway. No, no, they were they were promised, I guess, something a lot more than what the Germans. Um, were were actually delivered. The the whole thing was a shambles to begin with, and and Harry Doherty and and Dave Ling and everyone did did the best that they could with that magazine to the to the where where it got to. But there was just this huge controlling influence of Germany that continually seemed to screw things up for how the magazine ultimately looked because it was all all the work was done. Um, in Germany, and then they kind of put their own bits into it. They messed up the layouts and all the translation sometimes from the German into English wasn't great. So the whole shambles at the time. And I think what um, Dante and company found out wasn't really what they'd been promised, and therefore I don't blame them for walking out the door after however long it was that they were with them because they needed. They were professional people. They needed a better base to, to work from, which ultimately they created with, with Raw. Yeah. No. No. So when Metal Ham, when your job with Metal Hammer went, that's obviously around the time, like you started working with Kerrang just after that. Um, yes. Do you think it, did any of the guys, Dante or Malcolm or any of them, when they formed Raw, did any of them try and put try and get you to work for Raw at all? No. No. That that wasn't on the table. I was. I was um, at Kerrang. They were. I wasn't the kind of writer that they were after, I guess. And I was as fully established at Kerrang by then, anyway, and wouldn't have left. Yeah, yeah. Now, what sort of, what sort of genre of metal would have been your forte around that time? Like, were you a big hard rock guy? Were you a trash guy? Were you southern rock? What, what one did you like the best? Um. I, I liked all kinds of heavy metal, to be honest, because with Metal Forces, that magazine covered a huge um, range of stuff from extreme metal. Uh, it was getting to that point. Actually, Metal Forces is a magazine that coined the terms thrash metal and death metal. And um, death metal almost was a kind of a piss take to, to bands like Hellhammer and, and, and company because of what they were doing. It just sounded ridiculous at the time. But it kind of caught on. So I kind of like... I can enjoy thrash metal just as much as, as glam or melodic rock, AOR, traditional heavy metal. If it's good, I like it. But I kind of got, I don't know, the way that things went, I kind of got more into the melodic hard rock kind of stuff, whether that be AOR from Journey or Foreigner or those kind of bands, the sort of stuff Derek Derek Oliver was was very infamous for for sort of um, championing, but also more what became and and I I loathe this term hair metal, but what became known as hair metal I guess was what I got kind of pushed into more in terms of the kind of stuff I was writing for Kerrang at that 
point. But up to then, um, it was pretty much anything that I liked went in terms of metal forces. Yeah. Uh, my background, of the, the sort of the early stuff that I got into as a kid was like Sweet Slade, Alice Cooper, and the artist formerly known as Paul Gadd, who no one likes to speak about anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Gary, yes, I do. Um, yes. <laughs> So tell me about the environment in Kerrang when you went in, because of course Dante and all them had probably left. Re- you know, a lot of the writers had gone be- just before you joined. So, like, wh- who was there when you joined? Who was still there? Um, Howard was still there. Um, Alison Joy um, was there. Chris Welch, Derek Oliver, Mick Wall, um, John Houghton had just started really as a news uh, as news editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there were a, a poor suit. No, poor suit had left by that point because I, I don't know what happened to him. But there were certainly um, a number of writers that, that still decided that they wanted to be with Kerrang. Um, I think the big fallout was because there was there was an unhappiness for those that left about the magazine going weekly. Um, but they took their their opportunities in terms of what they wanted to do, and then went on to form Raw. And I I took mine and other people joined in um, later on as well so you know like, like, there, there were still some of the old guards still there certainly Derek was there and Mick Wall and, and company so they, they weren't um, sort of bereftive writers yeah now, now do you remember the, the first uh, uh, the thing that Jeff asked you to write was it a was it a review or a, a gig or was it an interview can you remember it, it was a gig review it was a great white um, marquee show just before Christmas 1987 that I, I went to um, and that yeah that was the first thing I ever wrote for, on my re- kind of um, return to Kerrang um, in, in more of a, a full time capacity and then I was asked to write I did something on the New York band Hitman and um, then I think the first trip I got was fairly early on in January. I think it was January. Yeah, it was January. Um, because at an editorial meeting, Jeff asked me if I if I wanted to do something on Crocus. Um, and he said it would mean it had mean going to Switzerland. I says, well, that's the kind of thing I signed up for, so that's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to Switzerland. I went to Zurich for one night to interview Crocus, which was pretty cool. Yeah, now how much travelling outside the UK had you done up till then? Um, a fair bit, actually, because when I was on Metal Forces, I actually used to pay for myself to go to the States um, a couple of times, um, and primarily on holiday to, to visit friends, but also to um, track down all kinds of different bands and... and um, do interviews with with major label acts in New York um, because we had good, fairly good relations with record companies at that time, even for a, a, like a glorified fanzine. So I had been to the States uh, quite a bit up, up to that point. And I'd also, for Metal Hammer, had this bizarre trip where I went to New York for one day uh, from London to, to interview Anthrax see the show, and then come back the next day and write the piece for the Monday morning. <laughs> That was ludicrous. Went went out on the Friday, um, went straight to the Beacon Theatre to interview the band. Um, there was some sort of screw up in my hotel, so I didn't have a hotel until the record company sorted it out, thankfully. And then the next day, um, after the gig, um, I hooked up with a photographer to make sure that he had all these photographs printed. And then I took them back on the plane that night. 
landed at Heathrow on Sunday morning, went straight home, wrote the piece up, and then had to deliver it by courier to Metal Hammer on the Monday. And then when it came out, the Germans had screwed it up because it was all over the place in terms of layout. Oh. There's some stuff on the internet isn't out that quick. Crazy. But once I did start writing for Kerrang, I did get, get about a fair bit. Yeah, do you think that doing that in Metal Forces before you did, did Kerrang, did that help Jeff to kind of, you know, leave you alone kind of? That you, you kind of had the contacts anyway. And it's like, you know, he's going to bring in good pieces. He's already done all of this. I don't have to tell him where to go. Yeah, I think Jeff, Jeff is, is probably, there's two guys that I that I feel um, have helped me immensely in terms of where I got to. One of them was Jeff because he took a chance on me in terms of giving me the job at Kerrang! after the Metal Hammer today call. But he knew what I could do and what I was into. Um, because of the work that I've done on Metal Forces, and he once said to me that you're not you're not a great writer in terms of like the kind of stuff that Mick Wall, for example, could deliver, but you write with authority, which is what I like about you. Which I thought was I was quite flattered by that. And the other guy that uh, was a huge influence was a guy called Steve Hammonds, who I met around um, 1981. Um, who introduced me to people like Derek Oliver and Dave Ling and um, Kelv Hellraiser is another infamous name from from Metal Forces. Um, And we were all became these huge record collectors going around um, the record and tape exchange and all all these different record shops in London and going to gigs. But Steve probably introduced me to a whole new range of bands that I would probably have never, ever discovered had I still been living in Germany, where I was living before I came back to England in 1980. Yeah. Even Jeff was probably the biggest influences on, on my sort of tastes, I guess, and also in my writing. Yeah. Now, now, now tell me about the research you used to do. Like, just say you're going to interview a band or you're doing a review, like, would, are you someone that you'd listen to the album once maybe for the review, or would you like live with it for a week or two? Or how would you approach doing an interview? Like, would you just go in cold or, or would you spend like a week or two weeks maybe researching the band? I think I probably would, I'd probably know about the band before I'd even said I'd do the interview. So I'd be become, I'd be very au fait with, with what they were all about and what they sounded like, who was involved. I'm one of those people like Derek Oliver that, um, are obsessed with album credits. You know, on the old albums where you just look at, at the, all the album credits as to who played what and where and where it was recorded and who even designed the album cover and things like that. So, and because I was quite a, a big record collector at that time, I probably still am in the CD age, um, I, I kind of knew about the bands beforehand before I even interviewed them. So there was very actually little preparation unless of course you had a new album out which you which you need to listen to 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 get a little bit more background in terms of what they were about at that point in their careers. So it was it was being knowledgeable about the bands to begin with. Um and that's just been an ongoing thing in my life ever since really. Yeah, what about what about the personalities in the band? Like did you research them up front to kind of think, you know, I'm, I'm, this guy will talk to me. Um, this guy will only talk to me if such if this thing happens. Do you, you know what I mean? Like some guys were notorious yeah. for being very difficult, 
and others were, were for being very approachable. Did you research that at all? Not, not really. I think sometimes may, maybe I'd ask um, somebody um, whether who, who I've known had interviewed them previously as to whether or what somebody might be like. But no, I, I'd like to form my own opinions really of, of them. And, and if I did get into the position where they became difficult to interview, that's mostly because they just give sort of monosyllabic answers or just one sentence answers. And then sometimes it's quite hard to think of the next question in that time frame. So you have to be prepared to, um, with a, a quick fire question to back that up. So it, it just became um, a bit of a, it just it just something I did and, and was fairly good at because of the experience that I had with previously with Metal Forces and everything because it sort of like set me in good stead for um, when I actually joined the big boys, so to speak. Yeah, did you find that some of the bands remembered you from Metal Forces when you actually did the Kerrang pieces? Oh yeah, oh yeah, because there was there was it was almost like this transitional thing whereby okay, tapes right to Kerrang now, which means that it's going to be a little bit more widespread in terms of the coverage that that we're going to be getting. Because Metal Forces, as great as that magazine was and respected as it was, wasn't at the point I joined Kerrang yet into the big um, uh, news agents. It was still very much. Um, uh, a glorified fanzine, even though to me it was it was just as, as much a valid publication as anyone else. It was after I left that it became um, more widely available and 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 possibly even more well well respected. So yeah. it's, it's, people just agree. So it's okay. He's working for Kerrangna. One one um, band that perhaps benefited from that the most was Britney Fox, because I was writing about them when I was at Metal Forces. Um, uh, and then I saw them live uh, before I joined Kerrang. And one of the first things that I did when I moved to Kerrang, um, Jeff Barton was actually a really big fan of Britney Fox, and they were just about to bring their album out um, in 1988, the Dave's album. And so he wanted something um, to do with them. He, he wanted to put them on the cover. And this was some months, actually, before the actual album was released, so it's quite special for everybody concerned. And so... Um, I arranged with the um, the band's manager to go out to Philadelphia to interview them ahead of this album coming out and see them live again, and then um, sort of build a following for them in the UK via that Kerrang um, uh, front cover. And it did wonders for them because up to that point, Columbia Records, who had signed them, really didn't re- know what to do with them. They were just deemed to be these, this Cinderella clone band. And therefore... Having them on the cover of Kerrang! prompted the record company to say, hey, we've got something here. We need to put some more money into this. We need to promote them because there's, there's something about them that the Brits are, are looking at. So must be um, the Americans need to know about it as well. And that led to them going out on various tours and getting a gold record out of it. So I think the Kerrang! coverage helped them. It told me it did.
Yeah, what did what did you make of um, Dean Davidson? Because over time, the other three guys just had a huge falling out with him. Yeah. Like I've, I've go along with me. Yeah, like I've inter- I've interviewed Johnny D, and like he was yeah. saying, like the you know after the second album, it was like we just can't work with you anymore. No, it was a shame because they had everything that that was required of a band to go all the way. Quite honestly, um, what happened, I think, was Dean got his his, his he was basically too influenced by what then was happening with the Black Crows and, and that kind of music and he felt that they should be going in that direction he didn't want to do the frilly glam clothes anymore he wanted to, to sort of like dress down and everything and he was a, a little bit of a loner I find and he, he just got frustrated with the fact that um, he wanted to write new songs in his hotel room but the rest of them didn't because they'd just been touring for like weeks on end and they just wanted to sort of have, have a one a day off, they wanted to have a day off and not think about music, so it was this conflict um, it was classic musical differences that led to the fallout and him unfortunately um, having this big bust up which led to Michael Kelly Smith being thrown against a wall and the tour that they were on being cancelled because he just walked and I was just about to see them in, in the States at that time when that happened so I was kind of on the scene um, to get the interviews in relation to what happened and, and Dean's comments as well. I, I got on a, a fine with all of them and, and I think it was just a shame what happened ultimately that, that, that they had this big split and this big bust up and it's never really been been resolved. Yeah, true. Like I've, I've met Johnny D and I've interviewed him and he still has all those outfits from back in the day. I don't doubt it, so do I. <laughs> yeah, he, he said that his kids used to take him out of the closet and hold him up and say, Daddy, you, you used to wear this. <laughs> <laughs> I used to dress up to, to, when I went to see them. This is, this is quite sad now. But I because I was into that whole thing, whenever I'd see them, I used to dress up in, in that kind of yeah, kind of outfit. And I still have some of that. I'd never wear it now. But it was it's just quite amusing at the time and I, I interviewed him for Rock Candy Mag again recently Johnny and Billy and I said to them did, did you really did, did you sort of like think this is really weird that this guy's coming out to interview you to go on tour with you and he's dressing like you when he's just a, a fan and, and just a journalist and he says no we thought it was cool because you actually got what we were doing yeah at least they knew they were going to get a fair shot you know with the story yeah. because it wasn't going to be a hatchet job no you know, so so I tell, did hatch at jobs. That wasn't that wasn't what I was about. Yeah. So 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 Dave, tell me. I all, I've asked all. You've listened to the episodes. I ask all the guys this. Tell me about the road trip from hell. Was there one? The road trip from hell. Yeah. Either either the traveling didn't work out. The band didn't want to do the interview. You know, just scheduling whatever something that happened that didn't happen. The, the one, the one that probably springs to mind the most is um, when I went out to interview, went to Germany to interview Aerosmith um, in oh, I can't remember what year, 1990 or something like that. It was when they were just about to do Donington. It might have been 1993, actually. Yeah, it was about 1993 when they were just about to do Donington, and they were doing a Monsters of Rock kind of festival um, near Munich around that time, maybe a, maybe a week or so before they played Donington, and Extreme were on the bill as well. 
and I got sent out there with like 50 quid expenses from a record company, which was quite unusual at that time. And um, stupidly spent <laughs> spent nearly all of that on a taxi to get to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, by which time um, they were the, the band were there with with Kolodna, uh, John Kolodna, and um, the interview actually went went really well, but. That no plan seemed to have been put in place for me to actually see the band play later on in, in, at the gig. Um, I hadn't eaten all day, so I was absolutely starving. And um, they, they basically just left after the interview. They just left to go to the gig, and I was just kind of just left in the hotel uh, with no food, and um, ex- then expected to write this feature to deliver to Kerrang the following day because it was a really tight schedule. So I, I hired this this typewriter. For what I, I asked the hotel and the other typewriter that I could use is it was well before laptop computers and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I was, I was bashing this, this Aerosmith feature out, having just interviewed them. Managed to persuade somebody from the record company who was, who was just going out the door to the gig to pay for my dinner uh, because otherwise I had no money left. <laughs> um, and then I got a call um, from um, A&M um, to say that they had been told to contact me because I needed to also interview Extreme. Um, and I explained all well, that there's no way, there's no way that I can actually get to the gig because if there's no no one to transport me there. I don't even know where the gig is, and so it's going to have to be done over the phone. So that was in addition to writing the Aerosmith piece, um, which I'm still in the middle of doing. So a phone call was put through to interview Nuno over the Nuno Betancourt over the over the phone. And so after I did the Aerosmith piece, I then started on it on the Extreme piece, and then um, had to get a flood. So that was all done. Uh, God knows what time I finished writing that, but it was some time early in the morning. But I didn't get much sleepy um, afterwards because I had to catch a flight back to London at half past six and from Munich Airport. Um, luckily, I was able to work out that I could actually get a train back to Munich Airport as opposed to get another cab, which I had no money for anyway. Um, and then um, went straight to the office um, upon arrival at Heathrow, delivered both pieces, the Aerosmith piece ran, but the extreme thing they never bothered using, so that was a complete waste of my time doing that. Um, for, um, so that was probably the worst thing that's, that's happened, thankfully, because it might seem a bit prima donna-ish looking back, but it was, that was the circumstances were just not right. There was just no point in flying me all the way to Munich just to interview a band that I was not actually then going to see. Yeah, for a uh, cover story. What was the reason they gave for not running the extreme piece? Tell that again, sorry. What was the reason they gave for not running the extreme piece? Um, lack of space. <laughs> 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 Even though they were playing, they were playing uh, at Donington. They just never ran the piece. Wow, that, you must have been. Re- <laughs> you must have been really pissed off. 
Um, yeah, because it was basically I was losing money from from that not not being around. But it happened sometimes. There was stuff that the stuff that you did that was never run. It got more prevalent um, towards the the middle of the nineties when I was doing interviews with Steve Perry and and Boston and um, Foreigner, and they, they I was I was writing them and they just never got published in Kerrang. Um, so I later gave them to other publications as some of the, this is what this is what Steve Perry said in nineteen ninety four or something like that. So they ended up somewhere, but not a Kerrang where they were originally intended to go to. Yeah. Now, you said earlier on you were one of the, the guys that was on board with Britney Fox pretty quick, quickly. Um, I, I bought the album when it came out on vinyl, and I still have it, actually, probably because of the Kerrang piece. Was there any other bands back in back then that you championed that, like, you know, you really thought they'd, they'd, be, they'd be great and, and they never actually made it? Um, pretty Boy Floyd was probably one of them. Um, but they just created that that one album and then just disappeared. Another one was Love Hate. Oh yeah. Uh, although they got quite successful at the time. Shark Island was another band who I was I was I was quite um, keen on championing um, because they put an album out. Um, they got signed to Epic Records or somebody like that. I think it was Epic. Yeah, it was Epic Records. Um, and they they never really got their their just rewards either. <laughs> Another one of the band that Ronnie Lee Tecro put together after he left TNT. Okay. And they were pretty cool. Okay. Now, what, like you said, they, they put you out with a load of the hair metal bands. Like, I love all that stuff. I do hate the term hair metal as well. But, like, did yeah. you ever interview, like, Poison, for example, or Cinderella? Did you interview all the big bands? Yes. Interviewed Cinderella, interviewed Poison, Kicks, all the tough, all those, all those kinds of bands. Enough's enough. All of those bands at one point, Rats and Motley Crue, um, Winger, 
every, pretty much everybody in that sort of realm. Um, I, I never got the hair metal thing because it's always a derogatory term. And my way of thinking is that back then, everybody had hair, whether, whatever kind of music that they played, whether it was thrash or glam or whatever. So why aren't thrash metal bands called hair bands? Because they sometimes had bigger hair than bloody glam bands. Yeah. Did you ever ask any of the bands... Um, because one of my gripes at the time, um, like I was 16 when I got into Kerrang! about 87, was a lot of those ba- those bands that I loved, the likes of Winger and Rat and all them, they hardly ever toured Europe. Did you ever like say to them, like, what the hell are you doing? You just keep touring the States all the time. Um, mostly that was to do, well, yes, but they, they always had the answer, well, yeah, we're coming over, we're coming over, etc. But I think most of the time was that they, their management um, knew that they were going to make more money by touring the States than they would, ever would come over to Europe. Um, and they uh, certainly, even if you go back to the 70s with bands like, like Angel, who are my favorite band of all time, they never really pursued the the European fan base because for, because the management was so keen on getting every inch of, of uh, money or every dollar from them from, from touring the States that it was just, they just lose money if they were to came over to Europe. You know, not thinking about the fact about building up a, a fan base elsewhere, which would, co- which would possibly be quite lucrative, um, but it was always about being um, in self-contained in the States. And the other big reason a lot of these bands don't come over is perhaps certain band members just don't want the hassle of traveling. And I know there are one or two bands that have, have never really bothered with the UK for that simple reason. Not mentioning any names, but there are one or two that I know of that just don't want to travel. Yeah, you hear some people say they don't like the food, the culture, yeah. you know, any excuse whatsoever to, to stay where they are and be comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, well, you remember that Kiss, that Kiss song, "Rocking in the USA." I went to London too. There wasn't much to do, so <laughs> there was sort of almost a. I wouldn't say xenophobic because that's too much, too heavy a word. But you know, they were comfortable in the states, and you know, it's that's, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the bands like from that era, they're, they're actually one of my favorite bands now. And you said you interviewed them. I'm a huge Winger fan. I think they're amazing. Mm-hmm. I think. They got lumped into that genre because of their look. But when you look yeah. at the musicianship that they all have, it's it's like incredible stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so did you see I, them in, in the States or did you see them like in England? Can you remember? Um, I, I never saw them in the States, but I did see them when they played in the UK. Okay. Um, but that was some way after... Um, some years after um, they were sort of like uh, uh, big. But in actual fact, I kind of, it was really weird because I loved the first album, but the second album just didn't really do it for me. I remember reviewing it in Krang and giving it a really bad review. Well, you, you're, the one, you're the one gave it the two Ks. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah that's me. And I, I obviously, because I just didn't really rate it at the time, I still don't, but I can appreciate it more now than I did at the time. But it's interesting because I did interview Kip and and Reb when they put the third album out. And to an extent, they kind of agreed with the fact that it wasn't as good as the first album, which was which was my point. Um, the same kind of thing happened with Warrant, actually, because I didn't... I, I, I think I gave 3K, a 3K review for the first Warrant album. And that didn't go down too well with some certain members of the band. So when I went to L.A., 
in early 1989, um, the photographer I was working with at the time, um, George Bodnar, he went to do a photo session with them and he was told that, man, you, you, it was a good job you didn't bring that guy, Dave Reynolds, because we would have kicked him in the ass. <laughs> we don't want him around. Um, but little did they know that I actually actually got into their gig at the Whiskey um, a couple of days later and saw them, and they were really good. And then obviously the next album comes out, which is brilliant, and then I get um, to do an interview with them and get flown out to Charlotte in North Carolina to, to cover them. And it was a bit, a bit um, of a weird situation at first because um, I went, it was kind of a big press junket. So there were several journalists from UK publications. There was Cal Hellraiser from Metal Forces. There was me from Kerrang. There was Dave Ling from Raw. And um, we all went out there to see Warren, who were opening for Poison. And I remember me and Cal were the guys who used to like to dress up as rock stars. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that whole Britney Fox Poison thing. And we went, we, we went to meet a Warren at this bar and they were watching some. Um, some uh, boxing match on TV with their crew, and for some reason that we were banned, we were, we were me and Carol were barred from entering this pub because someone I don't know whether it was a member of the band or their road crew took exception to the fact that we were two fucking posers, <laughs> and we they don't want to be around fucking posers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we so we just we just went somewhere else because we knew the manager of this band Sugar Creek who were not quite local and he hooked us up with a couple of girls who took us to this club and and, and so forth. But in the end, um everything got sorted out. We got on I got on particularly well with Cheney and over the years and, and over the years that the rest of the band actually. So it was extremely saddening for me to speak to Janey about doing an interview for Classic Rock AOR about two weeks before he passed away so when I learned about the fact he died it was it was a, a really big shock because the guy was an exceptional songwriter and I thought he was a, he was a really good guy as well Yeah, no, you, you bring up Janey and I'm just wondering and I've asked a couple of the writers this question have you ever sat across from someone and looked at him and said this guy is losing it he, he needs help did that ever come up? Did you ever think of that? Um, not to, to the fact that I've actually interviewed anybody, but probably um, when I was at a Kerrang! I think it might have been the first Kerrang! Awards that was ever held in like the mid-90s where Ozzy Osbourne, I think a couple of, of us had to get Ozzy Osbourne out of the, out of the gents' toilets um, in order to go and collect an award, and he was completely out of it. Um, on whatever I don't know but uh, it was saddening to see that this guy who was like this hero to to a lot of, of, of music fans was just kind of a little bit of a, a sad figure really um, so that kind of kind of saddened me in a way because how can someone get get to that point you know I just don't understand it I've, I've not personally I've never done drugs and I'm not a huge drinker either so I don't quite understand how people can get to that point on this sort of stuff but that's just that's just me that's just the way I am yeah it's it's amazing how many you know people I'll bring up they'll bring up Ozzy I'll ask them for a funny story or whatever and invariably it's Ozzy I know it's yeah. not a funny story for you there with the awards but Ozzy comes up in every interview even when I bring him up or I don't bring him up <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. he's, he's, he's just this, this, this 
figure is he's, he's larger than life figure. Yeah. Sharon! So, so tell me, who are the people that you, you thought gave the best interviews? Um, Robert, John Bon Jovi was always good value. I, I interviewed him a few times, mostly in the 90s, actually, when, when they were sort of like um, over that period, that whole huge big period, but they were a pretty huge band even even then in the, like, the early 90s going towards that. I think actually the last thing I ever wrote for Kerrang! in 98 was a cover story um, where we had a bit of a heart-to-heart with him um, about his solo album and how he lives in New Jersey still and all this sort of stuff. Um, Man of War were always good fun. They were always good value. Eric Adams and Jerry DeMeo. Um, Chips Enough was, was pretty funny uh, from Enough's Enough. Janie Lane was always a, a really good interviewee. Uh, Wendy Williams was, was pretty funny. Uh, I, I kind of expected her to be a lot, a lot of a tougher um, subject to interview than she actually was because she's actually a sweetheart. Um, and again, um, she was, uh, you know, tragically um, committed suicide in the, in the manner that she did, and that, that was quite sad to, to learn about as well. Yeah. And Stephen Tyler was always pretty cool. And I remember the first time I met him was when he was he and Joe Perry were over in the UK promoting um, permanent vacation, and I went. Went to interview them for Metal Forces actually, and he said to me, he looked me in the eye and he says, "Have we met before?" I says, "No." He says, "Oh, you must be, you must um, look like some chick or something." <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of um, sort of ties in with the whole dude looks like a lady. <laughs> like, <anyway. laughs> so, so, so t- tell me now, you're out on the road with the band. You've got all the access, and I've asked a couple of the writers this as well. Uh, you've already hinted that you never did a hatchet job. How do you know what's kosher to go in the in in the uh, in the piece and what to leave out? Because you you've you've obviously seen stuff that you know didn't get printed. Yeah. So like, was was that was it pretty easy to say? Yeah, that's in and that's not. Um, yeah, because you kind of get an in your intuition tells you what's what's good and what's not. I mean, some of the stuff that you. You sort of see, I mean, with the groupies and things like that, stuff that happens on the road stays on the road. So you don't want to say, oh, yeah, this, yeah, whatever, X person went off with this girl, um, whatever, and that could affect their whole life at home. Um, So you kind of sort of like draw a veil over that kind of stuff because it does happen. And I'm sure that people's um, partners know that it happens, but it's not best, it's not good practice to kind of like shout it out in a in a magazine that say, oh yeah, he went off with this this girl and and so forth. But, you know, you leave that for them to disclose in their autobiographies 20 years later. Yeah, if they can, if they're allowed to. <laughs> they can, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, there, there's certain things that have happened that, that, that my intuition, my gut instinct says, no, this, this stays on the road. It, it doesn't go in a magazine. Yeah. And there was one particular incident, which I still won't, won't um, go into who it was. It, re- it related to some a band who ultimately lost a band member because they were either fired or they um, chose to leave. And it was because of a huge bust-up that they had had with their colleagues that I witnessed that I chose not to um, publicise in the magazine. And I still won't write about it until they, they tell me I can. Yeah, would you ever, would Jeff ever, like, say, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're a journalist, we're, 
you're working for Kerrang, you know, this is what happened, you, you got to put it in. Did that ever, that conversation ever happen or did he, was he pretty okay with all of it? No, he was fine with, with, with it. Okay. He, 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 Jeff was the, the kind of guy that, that trusted the writers that he had working for him. So it would be only an extreme circumstance that that kind of thing would happen. And I don't think Jeff ever sort of, um, actually said that to anybody. He, he was, was happy with, with what we delivered. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me the difficult interviews. It's funny, but you've listened to some of the episodes, like two or three of the guys have named the same person who was the worst interview they ever did. So, like, do you have any that stand out that was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to get anything here? Um, I think one of one of the more difficult ones that I did early on when I was, a, a, like, a, a cub writer at Metal Forces was Lita Ford, only because she was quite tired for whatever reason. Um, she, she didn't... She was one of those people that that just said one sentence in response to the questions that you're asking her. And I think it was just a bit of an off day for her. But for, for me, who hadn't really interviewed that many people at that point in time, and, and being confronted by sort of like one of the the women that I had on, on my bedroom wall when I was a, when I was a kid, that was kind of disappointing. It wasn't because she was she was really awful. It was just because she was clearly having an off day and just wasn't particularly responsive to to the, being questioned by some some sort of twenty um, year old kid. Yeah. Um, the, the worst interview that I probably did was with Status Quo, I think. And again, they were my heroes back in the, the 70s. I saw them at their, the peak of their powers. And it, I guess looking back, it, 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 it was more to the fact that they were like these this pair of jokey characters with Francis Rossi and Rick Parfit. And they didn't take themselves seriously. They didn't take anybody else seriously either. So they started having to go at my hair because it was, it was back in the days when you like the you know the back comb job, the aquanet hairspray, etc. Yeah. I just up to this interview with my hair to the skies, and they thought it was absolutely hilarious that I got this huge hair, even though like they were dressed like my dad. You know, <laughs> so and, and that kind of I, I just hated them after. <laughs> I just like you know you've just taken the piss out of me. I'm trying here to help you promote a record, and then you just taken the piss out of me, but. Now I know more about them um, over the years. You know, that's what they were like. But I just kind of got a little bit offended by it. But it didn't help that that kind of started this whole wiggy nonsense in Kerrang! Because there they, and a couple of people who shall remain nameless, but I know who they are, started, started calling me wiggy because one day I went into the office with my hair up to the sky and the next it was all flat. So there was this big dread to say, oh yeah, Dave Reynolds wears a wig. And I've never really got over that. <laughs> Mind you, I could, I could do with a wig now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to throw a few names at you, Dave, and you can tell me whether you've interviewed him or not. Um, Blackie Lawless. Blackie Lord, yes, I have interviewed Blackie Lawless a couple of times. And how did you find him to interview? Because he comes across as a very educated guy. He is. I, I enjoy talking to him. Um, I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he's, he's a very, very nice guy. He's, he's very articulate, and, and he, gives, he gives a very good interview. You, could, you feel comfortable knowing that you'll get a good interview out of him. All right, Metalheads, that is a wrap for another week here on Focus on Metal. Once again, big thanks to Dave Reynolds for coming on 
and taken part in our massive Kerrang! project. And if all the scheduling works out correctly, then we will hear the rest of uh, Richie's conversation with Dave Reynolds. That'll be coming at you next week. Like I said, at the beginning of the episode, Dave has a crap load of great metal stories to give us. And I didn't want to cut any of that stuff out, especially for uh, those listeners that listen to us each week on internet radio where uh, sometimes we often don't get the uh, leeway of time and we only get an hour time slot. So in order to make that all work out for everybody, then, uh, like I said, I'm going to cut this thing and uh, put a chunk of it on for uh, for the next show. Got about another 30, 40 minutes worth of great stuff from Dave. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal... Have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.